We always said that church wasn't a building. Church was always a people, a movement, a kinetic force mobilized to change the world. I know we can't meet physically right now, but that doesn't mean we can't be the church. It doesn't mean we can't pray. It doesn't mean we can't sing. It doesn't mean we can't connect with God and connect with each other and reach people around us. When Jesus told Peter that the gates of hell itself would not prevail against his church, he meant it. We're still here. Church is happening to push back our fear. Church is happening so that we can get a divine perspective to a world gone wild. The church didn't stop with coronavirus. It just got stronger. It wasn't held back, it reached farther. We weren't suppressed. We were unleashed. We don't have to be alone. We're still on mission in your kitchen, in your living room, and on your phone, and on your big screen, in your hospital room, and in the nursing home, and in the prison. Your church is still here. We are still here, right now, right here, ready to gather from living rooms and patios and kitchens all over the world. Welcome to PCC. I'm Mark Tapscott. I'm the Farmville Campus Pastor, and I am so excited to be here today. And I'm also excited that we are beginning to open some of our physical campuses. You'll get to hear about more of that in the, in the service to come. But right now, we're going to turn our attention to Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a young church leader named Timothy. And you can find that letter in the New Testament of the Bible. He starts the letter, Paul thanks Jesus for giving him strength and showing him mercy and putting him in a position of ministry. And then he wrote these words. Now to the king of the ages, to the immortal, invisible, and only God, may honor and glory be given to him forever and always. So let's sing together. Let's praise together. Let's celebrate together. Jesus, our rock, our firm foundation, our only king forever.
Bible, in the book of John, it says that the light of truth entered into the very world he created, but the world was not aware. It says that he came to the very people that he created, to the people who should have recognized him, but they did not receive him. But those who embraced him and who took hold of his name were given the authority to be called children of God. And that's you and me. When we are following Jesus, we get to have the confidence in knowing that we are children of God, that we are seen, that we are loved, that we are known by him, that we are who he says we are. So let's sing about that this morning.
together today. I am Angie Frame, the Midlothian campus pastor. And I'm Jeremy Ford, the Amelia and Nottaway campus pastor. And we have a lot in common, don't we? Well, um, I'm not exactly sure that we would fight in the same weight class. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I'm thinking more about like we're both homeless right now. Yeah, you're right about that. You see, Angie and I each lead PCC campuses that have been meeting in schools, and usually that is awesome. But right now, it's not. Because even as we're making plans to open our physical campuses at Farmville, Riverside, Powhatan, and Aylet, our newest campus that never even got to open at all, Angie and I are scrambling for other options. We are looking hard for alternate locations to meet because we can't get back into the schools at least until the students go back. And while that is certainly challenging, even frustrating, we trust that God's at work. So we are being creative and we're asking you to be creative. So while any of our folks from Amelia and Midlow are more than welcome to at any of our physical locations, we also want to encourage you to pull together some watch parties, maybe in your homes, in your backyard, maybe a barn or a clubhouse. Just gather a group of people together and stream the service just like you are now. We're going to do everything we can to equip you in that. So please let us know if you want to put together a watch party. You can contact us through the welcome card on your, the link you see in the chat room right now. And for everybody else, here is what we're working on. You are invited to attend services at Powhatan, Farmville, Riverside, and Aylet beginning on Sunday, June 14th. You can check the website for service time options and to make a reservation because we're going to observe all the rules and capacity and social distancing. So you'll need to reserve your seat in advance. 
Now that's for services in the big room at each campus. We're going to move very carefully with PCC kids. So while your whole family is welcome in our adult services, our kids programs will open a few weeks later. That'll give us some extra time to make sure everything's in place for our kids to have great experiences in PCC Kids. And right now, our plan is to begin Power Jam, which is for first through fifth grades at all of our campuses where it's possible on June the 28th. And we're continuing to explore options for when it will be feasible for us to have first steps for the younger kids than first grade. And PCC Students is planning some great events for the summer. To stay up to date on those middle and high school details, check out our website. Make sure you're on our students' YouTube channel and in our students' Facebook groups. Or fill out a welcome card to make sure you're in our database. And you can do all of that on our homepage at pccwired.net. And many of you know that PCC is not just in the physical locations that we mentioned. We have a presence in Wisconsin at an affiliate church, New Chester Church. So I want to say a shout out to Pastor Jim and all of his folks up there in Wisconsin. And we also have a thriving group of guys in Nottoway. As the pastor of the Nottoway campus, you know, it's been really difficult to be apart from our friends there. But while we haven't been able to meet physically with them every week due to coronavirus, the service has still been broadcast throughout the entire prison. And so every week, those guys at Nottoway and their families are still connecting with the worship and the teaching that we are experiencing right now. i got to share something I thought was really cool with you. Uh, we've had nearly 30 guys from Nottoway give almost $600 during this epidemic. Now, that number may not sound big to you, but you've got to understand that most of these guys make 25 or 30 cents an hour. So I want to thank you for partnering with these guys and with us to equip the church to do more here, near, and far away. And I'd like to pray with, about that if you'll pray with me now. God, we're so excited about being able to be together again. Some of us, God, have some worries about that and some fears about that. And so we just ask that you would be with us that we would continue to follow you in the things we say and do. But today, God, we're grateful for the opportunity you have given us to love each other, to reach each other, to care for one another, no matter what is going on in the world. We're grateful today, God, for those guys at Nottoway, for their commitment to support their church. May we follow their example as we lean in and trust you, not just with our lives and our health, but with our finances too, so that we can continue to see your kingdom grow and see you do great and amazing things in the lives of each and every person you touch. Thank you, God, for allowing us to witness such a miracle. In Jesus' name, amen.
this series is about what is unchanged, even in the face of a pandemic. If anything, the things that were rooted deeply in us, the unchanged things, have become even more evident. For example, if you liked to eat before, if your tendency before coronavirus was to gain weight, that is certainly unchanged, and I speak about this from personal experience. Being at home has only made my food addiction harder to hide and harder to fight, frankly. Because so much has changed, I spent a few minutes in the last few days thinking about what has not changed, what is unchanged around me. Here are a few examples. Susan, my wife, still hates to cook. That's unchanged. I have three grown kids. Their birth order is definitely unchanged. My oldest, Mary Ashley, still thinks she's in charge. That's unchanged. Our middle child, Daniel, still thinks he's been overlooked and forgotten. That's unchanged. And our youngest, Joshua, still thinks that the rest of us exist for the sole purpose of serving him. That's unchanged. During these past two months, when I've been home almost every day, I get up and cook breakfast almost every morning, bacon and eggs every day. And Joshua comes into my study one day earlier this week, and he says, Dad, could you separate the yolks in my eggs? In my scrambled eggs, I'd like two with egg whites only, but the other two you can just scramble normally. I was speechless. I mean, who did he think I was? His personal chef, the short order cook, the nerve. So you know what I did? I separated the yolk on the first two eggs and scrambled the rest. Of, well, I guess my response to his highness is also unchanged. A lot has changed, but some things are unchanged. Let's consider something far more important than what's on the breakfast menu. If you can remember when this pandemic started, like many emergencies and tragedies, it seemed like we all quickly rallied together with unity. Everyone was working together to protect the vulnerable, and, and we all took responsibility for something that was outside of us. Politics and division took a backseat so that we, together, could face a viral enemy. But our collective unity didn't last long. As the isolation dragged on, we returned to the comfort of our corners where we assume and presume and judge. Democrats blame the president. Republicans blame the Democrats. Everybody blames China. And not just the politicians. The divisions that we knew before coronavirus are not only unchanged, but now they're amplified. We eye people who wear masks. We eye people who don't. If people use their social media platforms to throw arrows at families who go to the beach and others fire shots at those who stay home. Coronavirus has given us new ammunition in our cultural war with each other. Culture based on country, culture based on color, culture based on our commonality with people who look the same and think the same and salute the same flag and believe the same way. And in the process of drawing lines around the way we see the world, we do something that's not conscious but is very real. We elevate the value of our people and devalue them. But here's also what has not changed. The infinite equal value of every person before God. Before King David was King David, he was small, skinny, unknown, and an unproven soldier. 
And people actually devalued him because he was the youngest son. Birth order in that day really did mean value. Everyone was determined to assign David's worth based on David's appearance. Everyone that is except God. In the selection of David as king, God speaks some words through the pages of the Bible that are particularly relevant to you and me right now, today. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance, David's appearance, or his height. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You and I live in a time of unprecedented division. And I'm sorry to say that nowhere is this more prominent than the one place it ought to be absent, the church. The church is supposed to be the voice of God in the world. It's supposed to be the movement that says, what you look like is not how we value you. The church is are often the epicenter of division. And we do it based on politics. We do it based on your coronavirus perspective or response. And we still do it based on color. Nobody ever says this. But deep inside of us is a virus that is far more sinister and just as deadly as COVID-19. This virus assigns value to people based on how we see them. We never say it. In fact, we say the opposite of that. But we still do it. There's no way we can deal with every category where this happens in the few minutes I have with you today. So I want us to look at one. Just one. In the aftermath of the most recent incidents of devaluing people based on the color of their skin, I want to talk about America's longest standing cultural division, black and white. I watched through tears the horrifying video of George Floyd laying on the ground, police officer's knee on his neck as he begged for his life until his life was sucked out of him. I watched through tears the video of Ahmaud Arbery being hunted down and shot. I watched through tears the video of Amy Cooper in Central Park, New York, calling a blatantly false accusation against a, pla a black man who was clearly doing nothing wrong. And I see these things happen over and over and over again, and I am tired of trying to justify it. I am tired of the conversation that seeks somehow to excuse it, and I am sick of the church's silence. Do I know what the motives are of these people who acted badly? Can I see their heart? Of course not. That is clearly above my pay grade. But denying that race is still a factor or that racism is the pandemic of our day is just silly. It's stupid. It's ignorant. This is not about cops. They're critical to our society and we should honor those who deserve honor. It's about something that none of us want to face and nobody wants to talk about. This is deeply personal to me because I have finally realized that this isn't about a cop who was bad or a color that's bad or even a community that's gone bad. I started to ask the question, what if what is bad is right in here? And I think this breaks the heart of God and it ought to break the heart of God's people 
But I didn't come today to beat you up. I came to lift you up. Because every one of us is equally and infinitely valuable to God. Every one of us is equally and infinitely valuable to God. And we should be able to shout that to the world with our words. And we ought to be able to show it to the world through our actions. And we should be able to do that with absolute unity in the church. There should be no disagreement or division about this. So I know this makes many of us uncomfortable. But many of you have decided to trust me as your pastor. So I am begging you, don't sign off. Don't log off. Don't turn your device off. Instead, come with me. Come with me into the discomfort. Because I want to introduce you to someone who's become a dear friend. A young black pastor who has a young church that is rapidly growing. His name is Vernon Gordon. And I've been spending some time with Vernon pre-coronavirus, helping coach him as he navigates the complexity of a new church plant something that I know a little bit about. But I've also been learning from him because we love each other and because we both love the church. But he's also had some painful experiences because some people see him who don't know him and they've seen him just as black. So I invited Vernon to my home so that we could talk together candidly on camera. And in our conversation, I want you to hear his heart And I want you to hear my heart as we try to look inside ourselves and unpack how we see each other. Tell us a little bit about your family background. Wow, so I grew up in um, a a beautifully diverse family. Uh, My mom uh, was a part of a family where my, my grandfather was a white man who married my black grandmother the first year interracial marriage was legal in the state of Virginia. Um, she already had three black children, my mom of which was the eldest. And then they had two children together. So my mom's youngest siblings, my aunt and uncle, are mixed. And then one of my uncles married a woman from Sierra Leone, West Africa, when he was in the military. She migrated here. And another uncle married a woman from Puerto Rico. So I like to tell people Thanksgiving was confusing. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot going on. Um, but also, it gave me a very early exposure, rich exposure to appreciating culture because they weren't raised in the States. They, 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 they came into it with a very you know, rich cultural identity that we all had to learn from them, and then they had to learn from us, and we had a chance to grow together. So that was a great experience. And as a part of that experience, I mean, I've had the benefit of hearing my grandparents tell stories about not only being ostracized by the white community, but the black community around them, just kind of feeling isolated in times. Uh, I'm actually doing an interview with my grandmother soon about that. And, uh, and all of the experience when my mixed aunt and uncle, what does it mean to not fit anywhere? Um, and those experiences. Uh, then on my dad's side, also interestingly enough, my, his father was the first African, my grandfather was the first African-American colonel in the Hampton Roads Police Department. So he started as a custodian and became the first black everything in the police department, captain, colonel, everything. And so rich history in law enforcement, but also uh, told me stories of being spit on and beat up in the locker room before a shift, that, that being discouraged to leave law enforcement, and yet he stayed the course um, so that he could open doors uh, for a generation like mine's. We were the beneficiaries of his um, staying uh, put and staying the course. So uh, that's my family background, and it was, a, it was a great history of seeing people struggle, but also seeing people stand for what mattered 
and uh, and I learned so much from their example um, and their witness, and uh, and and truly uh, inspired me to do some of the work that we're doing today. Uh, my, I grew up. My family was my family of origin was super poor, mm. and uh, I went to a, a school that had people of means, and my family didn't have a lot of means, and and so I always. Plus, I went to a very diverse school. So most of my life, I've never thought of myself as having, I certainly would say I was, I'm was i not a prejudiced person, but I would actually have said, I don't have those prejudices. Mm. But I, I've, I've been convicted that I need to relook. Mm. I need to take a fresh look inside and say, maybe it's there and you just don't see it. Mm. So I'm reading this book called White Awake, which... I find ironic that's written by a white guy, but anyway, one of the things that he says, if white people should not be asking the question, what can I do? Hmm. And I'm a little confused by that because I legitimately (laughs) want to help fix this problem where we're, where we see each other differently, where, where unity doesn't exist, which I think should exist in the kingdom of God, where, where color legitimately should not be a factor in how we treat each other or how we think of each other or how we value each other. So I'm asking you to be honest with me. Is it a bad question to ask, what can I do? And if it is, what question should I ask? Well, it depends on who you're talking to. (laughs) No, honestly, uh, for for me, this is my personal conviction. And I don't speak for all African-Americans, I know we're not monolithic, but it is my conviction that it is an okay question to ask. I think any other uh, iteration of the question gets us back to the same place. If if we don't want that question asked, I think we miss an opportunity um, to find progress. Now, I do understand uh, the heart of the statement, don't ask the question. And and if I could probably paint some, put some meat on the bone around that. Here's why I think that question often becomes fearful for people of color, because historically, when asked, what can I do? The assumption becomes, what can I own, right? What can I direct? What can I control? So when people ask, what can I do? The assumption, I think, or the implication that can be felt through history is, no, 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 what can we do, right? Like, Mm -hmm. not what can you do for us, you know? There's also the, the implication, and again, maybe I'm just painting a picture of what can many times be the assumption, I think, there, the implication that when someone says, what can I do? It's a sense of, let me come and save you, mm. right? And, uh, and we've seen this both international, um, you know, missions and even domestic missions, right? It's like, okay, we, we're gonna come in and save all these kids and this work and we're gonna do this. And so I think it's the, it, unfortunately, the question as stated has uh, uh, things written into it that mm-hmm. are, are connected maybe not to the heart of the question, Mm -hmm. but to the history of the question. I I go as far to say this too, I think that uh, when people talk about being allies or being a part of this work that we're trying to do, uh, and I say we not as black people, but as human people, right? It's the work that we're doing doing today and having this conversation, which is being unified. I think we should start with uh, seeking awareness, right? So before we seek to do, we should seek to learn. Right, like how do I lean into the lens and the vantage point of another? Like opening up myself to realizing that their experience may not be my experience in communities, in America, in this and in that. 
there's growing historical frustration sometimes, if I'm being candid. Yes, please. That, that uh, for, for many communities of color, um, white people feel like they have a plan to fix our communities better than we can create. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, we gotta change that. We, I, I'm heartbroken. We got the resources to do something about that. And with no exploration, with no exposure, no with no proximity, mm -hmm. it's like we're gonna create a nonprofit and a program to fix that mm -hmm. problem that we've never experienced, never talked to them about. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to, like this, like this idea, this, this inherent idea that we can fix problems that we haven't experienced, we can fix problems that we haven't been in proximity to. I'll give you an example of how this plays out a lot of times. Um, an example could be, uh, you know, man, people hear about like, you know, young minorities need educational support. So cool, we could throw money at it from afar. But it's not until you recognize, you know, uh, when we planted our church in 2015, we started at a middle school in inner city Richmond that didn't have central AC. It would be so hot in the summers. We would have to rent portable AC units just to get through service. Several times we had to, you know, cancel service because just the air conditioning units could not hold up to the experience. Right? Fast forward, we live in Chesterfield. They get laptops, <laughs> right? <laughs> Those students get laptops. Now, everybody's taking the same SOL, equality. But if a kid in Chesterfield public school system is taking that SOL in perfect temperature conditions. They're comfortable. Comfortable. And a kid in Richmond inner city schools is taking it without central air conditioning. And it is 95 degrees and they're exhausted and they're sweating. Same test, equal. Mm -hmm. Circumstances though are not equitable. Right. Right? So give you one more example. I was talking to a, a white police officer had a great conversation with him uh, not too long ago after the Amar Arbery incident. And he talk, tells this story of one day pulling up on the side of the road because they got a call that, hey, there's all these young black kids sitting on the side of the road up to something mischievous. Mm -hmm. He pulls up, says, what are y'all doing on the side of the road? And they said, the bus didn't come. So they, they like, oh, that's crazy. He talked to all the parents. And the parents were like, well, yeah, sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't make it. And if that were to happen in Chesterfield. It would only happen once. It would only happen once. <laughs> And as a police officer, right, he was like, it helped me to understand the need better. Right, we, do, what do we need to do? Do we need to talk about busing? Do we need to talk about buses? Do we need to like finance that? And so I simply say that as it's about understanding the need. Maybe they are just as academically sound. Maybe they just aren't taking the test in equitable circumstances. Right. They're just distracted by it. But know. if you don't know that, right. you may invest money into a tutoring program right. and not an air conditioning program. <laughs> Which gets back to your idea of proximity. Right. If, proximity. if you if you can't, if you're not close enough to it yep. to understand it, yep. then you'll, you know, you'll throw a lot of resources at the wrong thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the way forward is through relationship. And if we can do that. Uh, then we can ultimately then seek alignment, which is what you're talking about, right? That's what this conversation is all about. It's like, all right, after awareness and then after this making the ask, that's what you did today, right? You say, hey, let's have a conversation. Uh, then it becomes, how do we seek our alignment in our lives? So here's my question. Yeah. You have a predominantly black church. Mm -hmm. I have a predominantly white church. Yeah. How do we tell the folks in our church <laughs> how to go get friends in each other's church? Like, how do they do, how do, they do that? Do yeah. they just put out a post and say, hey, I don't have any black friends. If you're black, could you just, you know, <laughs> DM me? I mean, what, yeah. you know. I think we all have the tendency, a great question, to convene where we're comfortable. Here's a simple practical challenge I've offered to some people in our community. I say, hey, if one weekend a month, 
You say, we're going to be intentional. We're going to develop some community that's broadening the bridge and diversifying our context. And we're going to just set every third Saturday, we're going to get our kids together to play. Right? It didn't derail my entire comfort, but it was a practical thing because we schedule what we value. So I think mm. it's those simple, right, like incremental acts of opening up our life that happen. Now, granted, the question still has to happen, right? Like, where do you find those people at? I think it's the practice of proximity. I think we got to look for the opportunities around us and then practice the gift of proximity and let those organically create opportunity for engagement and relationship. So because we're having, because we got the, the opportunity today to have a really honest conversation, uh, and I appreciate you letting me ask these, these questions, because a lot of people, I, I suspect this goes, I suspect this is true in both the black community and the white community, but just to be completely honest, a lot of white folks don't know how to ask these <laughs> questions. They're afraid that asking the question in itself is yep. offensive. So when I was in seminary, I decided to take a class at Virginia Union University. Mm -hmm which is an almost entirely black school. Absolutely. I so got my, my MDF from there. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't know that. So I take, uh, so I take a class called Pauline Literature. Mm. And I walk in, I'm the only white guy in the class. <laughs> and the very first class, the professor has us make some introductions. And the other folks in the class, who are all black, basically look at me with, like, all together. They look at me <laughs> and they say, why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you here? <laughs> Now, they did it politely, yeah. and I recognized that it was actually a pretty decent question. <laughs> like, you, you don't look like you belong here, so why are you here? And this is what I told them. I said, I recognize I, I am learning and living in a bubble, mm. and I sure would like to understand better yep. about what your community, particularly in church life, mm. see how you see the world and how you think and how you believe and so that, because I feel like we could do something better together. And what was interesting about it is, I think some of my colleagues in that class were offended at first. Mm. And then they weren't, mm. but it took some time. Yep. The reason I bring it up is because there are a bunch of white folks who are thinking, if we just start going to the predominantly black restaurant, <laughs> they're gonna ask the same question. Why are you here? And some of them may be mildly offended mm. for a while, like you're just trying to patronize mm -hmm. us. Is that really, is that a risk? And how do we approach that? Well, I think, you know, it, all of us, and particularly from a kingdom perspective, want to have to get away from the theological construct that our faith is supposed to be absent of risk. Mm. I think that at a core Christian level, Jesus doesn't promise us a life without risk. Mm -hmm. He promises us like carry your cross and rejoice in persecution. And this idea uh, that um, if we you know in the book of James, it talks about, you know, through trial and tribulation, right? You know, come out on the other side more whole. Mm -hmm. So I think that to model a Christ-like following, uh, we have to not ask ourselves, is there a risk all the time, but is there a reward? that expands the kingdom mm. and unifies the wow. kingdom. I think that is a challenge that we all have to accept. And that's black, white, or indifferent, right? Like black people have to take that risk. Like we can't just like go like, you know, re return to our corners and say, we're good over here and you're good over there. I think everybody has to do their part to kind of step beyond the comfort of, you know, like, like I, we're good over here and to step into the risk 
so that we can see the reward of unity and diversity in the kingdom. Um, I think also too, it's okay to, if, if this is possible, this is a practical thing, because I think sometimes we can play in the clouds. Sure. I think it's okay to like practice ambassadorship too. So like sometimes I tell people, if you have a person that you can say, hey, I'd love to be exposed to some culture things or do this or do that, can you take me with you, mm. right? Like, because now I'm an ambassador. Now I have an ambassador to the conversation. Now I have an ambassador to the setting and the environment. Now I have an ambassador to the, the, to the community that says, no, 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 this is my man's. I mean, you, you know, you know yeah. that I had you coming to a staff retreat for us mm -hmm. at, at Lake Anna, which now has been canceled. Before the whole world fell apart. <clears throat> Before pandemic. But I was excited to like say, hey, this is a pastor that I trust. I trust his heart. I trust him and his wife's, you know, just love for my wife and I. And then also, I think he has some really great stuff to develop us. But I am an ambassador of your voice to, to their context. And so I think we got to look for those opportunities as well. Hey, here's what I would say. I, I'm not saying let's everybody just go find like the, the best black place we can <laughs> hang out and the best white place right, we can hang out. Right. Um, because I've done this. I've, I went to the country music museum, right? To just like, help me understand this, you know, the country music thing. And now my, I drive my wife crazy because it's one of my favorite genres. Like, you know what I'm saying? So I say that to say, I think we can, we can say, I, I, I can go into space and I can go into place. And even if I don't have ambassadorship, what I can do is just be present. Mm -hmm. And what we learn from just being present, right, is a gift in and of itself. And here's what I've learned. We're okay accepting the being the oddball out, like eyes on us when we're in a different country. And we go into different countries and we know we look odd, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But missions trip oddness, right, internationally is, is, is more exciting for us than domestically. So we can go to another country, look around and say, man, people are African, people are European, people are Eastern, Middle Eastern. And like, but we're here. I know I look weird, but hey, we're here for the gospel. We're here, for, we're here to take the kingdom here. And I just would challenge all of us to have that same courage domestically, yeah. right? Like, because to your point, yes, does it start with what's going on here? But what will end is a beautiful flourishing relationship with the kingdom of God. My family grew up very rural, very segregated. I mean, like Uber in the South, like this is South. And I remember when I was a kid, I was probably nine or 10 years old, and we would go maybe once a month and we'd visit my, my great-grandparents. My grandparents' family was from there, all my cousins and aunts and uncles. And so we went in the house one day, Grandma Hughes' house, my great-grandmother, and you know, she lived surrounded by 100 uh, 100 acres of field and, and really is a pig farm and I mean you know we walk in the house or we go to walk in the house the door's locked so when we finally get in the house and she kind of hobbles over and sits down and I said grandma why do, you, why do you like the door and she says well serious as serious as she could be she says well of course I lock the door you, you never know when a black man's going to show up and I remember that conversation distinctly because it was so startling to me. I mean, I went to a fairly diverse school. I mean, I had black friends. I, I, I think it's so fa I thought it was so fascinating and startling that, that somebody would say such a thing. I would not have thought such a thing. But what it reminds me of, is, as I've reflected about it over the years, I've, I've really uh, gotten a lot into family systems theory and the health that, it, that any health that I've achieved in my own life has, has come, at least in part, from understanding family systems, the multi-generational transmission of family systems. 
and how my great-grandmother's way of thinking and her generation's way of thinking in my very Southern, very white family would have been transmitted generationally, both before her to her and then from her after her. And it's caused me to do a lot of reflection of, okay, what of that still has remained, if any, in me? And where is it? And how do I root it out? How do I acknowledge it and deal with it? Mm-hmm. Instead of just saying, well, I'm, I'm not a prejudiced person, which is the standard for, for, for my culture, that's the standard white answer. Mm. It's the way of shutting down the conversation. Well, I'm not a prejudiced person. Mm-hmm. What's for dinner? Well, I'm not a prejudiced person. Want to go see a movie? We, we don't want to have the conversation and we just get out of it like that, as opposed to saying, okay, I really hope I don't see people differently based on the color of their skin. I actually don't think I do, but it's in my family a lot. Maybe I ought to step back and ask the question again. What you just said is a beautiful, maybe beautiful is not the right adjective to choose, but a, a accurate picture of why this conversation is important. Because I think for some, we, we're like, okay, we went through that season already. Like, do we have to keep talking about this? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, why are we still talking about this? Well, we're still talking about it because you had the ability to to take that information and at some point in your life, process it, filter it appropriately, and not make it create in you a way of thinking that changed the course of your life. But everybody didn't. Right. Like some people heard something like that. And then their ethos about life from that day forward yes. was a perception about color. Yes. I think once we just can acknowledge that, Right, both ways. I, I think we said this when we were talking before we started rolling the camera. I, I have to acknowledge, like you acknowledge, like, okay, you had a grandmother say one thing. I had a grandfather say, don't trust no white people. If I told my grandfather I was in this house right now <laughs> in Powhatan with a white people around me, he would have a panic attack, <laughs> right? Because he was beat up by white people and he experienced oppression and discrimination and threats. So for him, protecting us was instilling a fear in us, yes. right? And, and here's what's funny. My parents separated several times before they eventually divorced. Had a great relationship, parented us well, but they just, you know, their marriage was kind of in and out. And so I told you, like, I had my white grandpa, right, who we would always go and live with those grandparents whenever my parents would separate and eventually divorce. And then I had my black grandfather who who grew up, right, like getting oppressed before he became a, 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 you know, a law enforcement captain. But, but he was like, hey, don't trust white people. And I leave his house and go home and live with a white man. I was confused. <laughs> hey, I, I recognized it was just fear. Yeah. It was fear and it was all that he knew. And I think that we have to acknowledge that wasn't that long ago. And I've talked to people who say racism doesn't exist or why are we still having this conversation? I say, if my grandfather who raised me was from the generation who was abused, oppressed, and threatened, then it is safe to assume somebody who doesn't look like me was raised by the grandparent who did the oppressing. There you go. So when I tell the story of my daughter, which I posted a video about, um, who was attacked at her school for the color of her skin, a little boy and a little girl choked her, pulled her hair, and then they said, you know, when she asked, why did y'all do that to her? And the bus driver confirmed the legitimacy of this story. They said, well, because she looked different. 
when that story is heard, it doesn't matter whether you're a black parent or a white parent. All parents want to protect their children. That's right. So now we have to ask ourselves systemically, right? What do we want to change generation by generation so that little black kids and little white kids, right? We're not talking about this in the 60s. We're talking about this in 2020. Grow up having a value for each other's, the, thing, you know, the things that matter to them culturally, right? I think we see this in the Gospels when we see Jesus answer the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus chooses to answer that question with a parable about the Good Samaritan, which has ethnic implications. Yes. We don't, you know, Jews and Samaritans don't. We don't, like women at the well, we don't talk to each other. Right. And so there's these ethnic implications, but look at what the Samaritan does. Jesus says the Samaritan doesn't just observe the need, doesn't just operate from a contemplative place, and doesn't just use his resources to be like, hey, there's somebody on the side of the road here. You've been beat up pretty bad. If he comes here, you know, here's some stuff to help him get here. He comes close to, and he uses, I mean, alters his priorities. He alters his privilege. He uses his resources. He uses his, his presence to get this man to a place of opportunity and the other side of his pain. Um, and so I just think that is vitally important that we see those pictures even in the gospel. Yeah, he even, the Good Samaritan even puts his credit on the line. I mean, yeah. He writes a blank check. It yeah. says anything, yeah. any expense you incur, I'll cover it. Yeah. I think what we're doing today, Life Church, Passion Community, uh, you know, John Wagland Hill City Church. I just told you I was with jo uh, Josh Whitlow and Heights Church and then other friends of mine who pastor black churches. What we're all doing is saying, we could do way more together than we could do apart. Mm -hmm. So you have an opportunity to elevate my voice to a community that I couldn't reach. I have an obligation to elevate your voice to a community that you couldn't reach. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You know, this is about all of us being open to me being a learner, to others being a learner about what we can do to understand each other. Because in many ways, I think we all want safety of our children. We all want better economies. We all want jobs. We all want stability. I think it's these small windows and lenses that we can look through to be like, okay, how can we all then be in alignment so that we honor each other as a people, as a human people, for the future that we want to create for our families. Are we willing to honor each other as a human people for the future that we want to create? Are we willing to use our voice to elevate the voices of those who get devalued by others? I am. I'm willing to do it. And it's going to come with a cost. But to be honest with you, I don't care about that anymore. What I care about is truth. And if you want some truth, here's some truth. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's truth. You want some truth? Here's truth. God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. That's truth. You want some truth? Here's truth. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and Anyone, anyone, anyone who believes in him will not die, but will have eternal life. Every person 
is of equal and infinite value to God. Every person is of equal and infinite value to God. We need to say it, we need to believe it, and we need to act like it. So, to the follower of Jesus who is hearing my voice today, our silence has to end. Our voices have to rise. We have to stop burying our heads in the sand and talk about what's going on around us. We have to look at what's inside of us and take another look and take the risk. Whatever is in here that leads me to assign value to people based on the color of their skin has got to come out. I can no longer dismiss the conversation simply by saying I'm not a prejudiced person, but instead I have got to be willing to do the hard and painful work and the reflective work of digging deeply, finding that crap, naming it for what it is, and letting God expel it forever. I also have to genuinely try to understand the experiences of people who don't look like me and weren't raised like me and don't have the background that I have. I don't want to have these conversations so that I can argue with them or try to change them or try to fix them, but so that God through them might change me. So this week, I want to urge you to go to PCC's website right on the front page. You just scroll down, you'll see Vernon's picture. And there, you'll get a link to watching five videos that he did, five short videos, and they wrecked me. Some of the stories I knew and some of them I didn't, but what, what Vernon shares is about his own personal experience, some things that have happened with him. What you will hear, if you will do that, will change you. And if you let him, God may very well break your heart for the disunity that our collective prejudice has brought. But God can also heal his people if we'll let him. I want to share one more thing with you before we pray. The conversation that I had with Vernon really lasted over an hour. You just saw a portion of it here today, but we've made a fuller version of the conversation available for you. It's also on PCC's website. And what you'll hear, if you'll watch that whole interview, will help all of us understand better, which has to be the beginning of this. I believe that we can do something about the way that we value each other Namely, we can expand our inputs. We can start to hear other voices and listen to other people who have had different experiences. We can read new authors. We can listen to new people of influence. We can engage in new conversations with people around us. Let me challenge you to do that. When I read this book, White Awake, one of the things that the author did was he made a list. He was encouraged to make a list of the five authors he read the most, the five preachers he listened to the most, the five closest friends and the five mentors around him who were speaking into his life the most. And when he made that list, he discovered that all of them were white. And I began to realize that I've got to expand who is influencing me so that I can understand the world better and step out of my own bubble. Let me challenge you to do that too. If we begin to do the reflective work in here and let God change us, and if we begin to listen to other voices so that we understand the world better, we may very well change our lives. We may very well change our communities. We may very well change the world. This is what God always had in mind for the church, that we would be agents of change because of his goodness, because every person is of equal and infinite value before God. Will you pray with me? Here we are, God, again again in the aftermath of some of the most ugly things humanity 
has ever done. And it breaks our hearts, God. We know it breaks yours. And, and our prayer today, God, is that you would so break the hearts of your people that we would finally be willing to move beyond our discomfort or our political correctness and into a moment where we say we can't stand this anymore. As a white man, God, I pray today for our black brothers and sisters who have experienced fear and oppression and abuse simply because of the color of their skin. We can do better, God. You've called us to be better. So bring us together, bring your people together and help us to experience the world like you always intended it. A world where there's no longer Jew or Gentile slave or free, male or female, black or white, but just your people. Help us see that world, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope that you'll do the hard work this week and in the weeks to come, and I will join you in it. I hope you come back for the last week of this series next Sunday, and maybe even join us tomorrow for daily worship. We'll see you then.